you would turn to Hebrews chapter 7. The scripture tells us to refute error and to rebuke false doctrine. I think that uh, there's probably some people that make that the whole focus of their ministry and get a joy out of it. And I think we have to be careful um, with that. But nonetheless, Scripture does call us to rebuke false teaching to correct error. And to uh, that's part of the duty of an elder. And so when we look at a passage like Hebrews chapter 7, verses 26 through 28, the text we looked at this morning, we looked at it rather in a positive way in terms of what the text is teaching us. We, we didn't get through all of the verses, and so we'll have to look at them next Sunday some more. Um, but we also see something that should, I hope, that stands out really clearly if we were to think about it uh, that does correct false teaching that takes place every single Sunday across the whole entire world. And so let me read the text, Hebrews 7, and then we'll talk about it. In verse 26, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Now, I want to zero in on verse 27. It says something of Christ's sacrifice. And specifically, when you look at that text, what does it speak of Christ's sacrifice? Does it speak of something that is complete? That has happened one time and was definitive? Or does it leave open the option of further sacrifice? What do you see in the text? One sacrifice. Now, the argument in the book of Hebrews is that when you look at the priesthood, how often did they present sacrifices? It says daily. They did this for several hundred years. Constantly offering sacrifices. But there's something interesting about that, them doing it twice a day, continually, for the period of the duration of time that there was the tabernacle, which we see that they could not receive atonement for it. They're presenting these sacrifices and the blood sacrifices that came by this were far less in number than the sacrifices that get presented every Lord's Day across the world, known as the Mass. 
And think about that for a second. And when I say this, I don't mean for us to be controversial. I don't say this to be polemical or dogmatic. I simply want us to look at the scriptures for this reason. What does the scripture say and teach us about Christ and his sacrificing atonement? And more than anything, it comes out of a love for many of my friends that are trapped in that system. You know, the Christian church today oftentimes gets this idea confused. In 1994, a group of uh, cardinals and Catholic theologians came together with a group of Christian theologians in 1994. And they called it the third millennium mission of the church, and it was for the purpose of getting over the differences that came about in the Protestant Reformation. And so they signed a document called Evangelicals and Catholics Together. It's massively influenced, uh, influential in the church. In fact, you might have been influenced by a guy named Charles Coulson. I have been. Perhaps you have read the books of J.I. Packer. I've read his books and, and recommend his book, Knowing God is a Classic. They were some of the co-signers of this. What that did is it invited massive confusion into the church because we lost the distinctness of the church. But here was the distressing part. The evangelicals and Catholics together was to affirm certain commonalities for the purpose of mission. Now, here's the danger of this. What is the mission of the church? What is the mission of the church? It's, it's the proclamation of the gospel. It's the Great Commission. That's the mission of the church. How can, I perf- how can I be obedient to Christ's command in the Great Commission if I don't know who my mission field is? And so that's what was invited into this. This is They had, they had these several points. We affirm together. We hope together, we search together, and we contend together. The two ones that are the most concerning are that we hope together. What we have is a hope in common in Christ. But is that true? Oftentimes I've heard, in fact, I I just recently heard this, well, we believe in the same God. Yes, we do. Roman Catholics affirm the Apostles' Creed, they affirm the Nicene Creed, they affirm the Chalcedonian Creed, and to the Protestant Church today, to our shame, we don't understand those documents as well as they do. But there is a difference we have to understand. It's not just justification by faith alone. It's actually the very celebration of the Mass in itself repudiates the complete work of Christ. Because what takes place in the Mass? Does anyone know? What is the purpose of the Mass? The Mass is the center of their worship. This comes from the Catechism. The Catechism says the Eucharist is thus a sacrifice because it represents, makes present, the sacrifice of the cross because it is a memorial and because it applies its fruit. He left to his beloved spouse, the church, a visible sacrifice. In this divine sacrifice, which is celebrated in the Mass, the same Christ who offered himself once in a bloody manner on the altar of the cross is contained 
and is offered in an unbloody manner. So this, the, the language is represent, but oftentimes what you will see is this language accompanying is that we are offering to God a sacrifice for the sins of the living and the dead. What does Hebrews tell us? There is one sacrifice. If I deny, I mean, well, there's a recognition of the one sacrifice to be fair. But if I have to keep doing it as a memorial, but then also add to it the idea, this is for the forgiveness of sins of the living and dead, what have I done, in effect, to what Christ one time sacrificed has accomplished? I've denied it. I've denied that. You know, this language that we sometimes use is that, well, we all believe in the same God, that is true, but do we believe in the same work? And is that what some of our forefathers thought? Where they said that, oh, we we just have a few minor squabbles, a few differences, but at the end of the day, we believe basically the same things. It's not what they believed. It's not what they believed at all. In fact, they wrote things that some of us would have a hard time reading today, even in the London Confession of Faith, written in 1689. This was common in the Westminster and the Savoy Declaration. So if you just... For a second, think about it this way. You have Presbyterian churches, which eventually birthed into the Reformed churches. You have Baptist churches, and you have Congregational churches. That, that makes up all of the different denominations. And so the Savoy, the Westminster, and the Baptist London Confession of Faith. I want you to hear what it says on the doctrine of the church. Now, some people argue that this should have not been in the, the confession. I'm not making that argument. All I'm doing is giving us a historical point of view that this is what for our forefathers in the Protestant tradition thought. When we say the Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Can we say amen to that? In whom by the appointment of the Father all power for the calling, institution, order of government of the church is invested in a supreme and sovereign manner. So what is that statement simply saying? Christ is the head of the church, just like the Scripture tells us. They added this, though. Neither can the Pope of Rome in any sense be the head thereof. What what is the Pope called? The head of the church. And so the confession is saying, you can't call him the head of the church. Just like you couldn't call the pastor of a local church the head of the local church. Christ is the head of the church. But then they go on to say this. This is where people would get really uncomfortable. But is that Antichrist, the man of sin, the son of perdition, that exalts himself in the church against Christ, and all that is called God, whom the Lord shall destroy with the brightness of his coming? That's confessional. Now again, you you might, and, and there's... A lot of, lot of friends that, that I, I, I'm really good friends with say, hey, that shouldn't be in the confession. It shouldn't be a confessional statement. I'm okay either way, but the point is, historically, there has been a really clear understanding about these things. 
We don't have that understanding today very often, do we? But the thing is, is that we're not untouched by this. The worst thing that I can do is remain silent with the gospel because someone says they believe in Jesus, but they actually don't believe in the completed work of Christ. That's the worst thing I could do for that person. Do Roman Catholics believe in Christ? Yes. Do they believe in the completed work of Christ? There are probably some that do, but confessionally, no, they don't. Do they believe in justification by faith alone? No, in fact, this is what the Council of Trent says from 1547 that has never been repudiated. It says, this is anathematized, that the impious is justified by faith alone. The church anathematized that. Do you know what it means to anathematize something? It means that they curse it. So the Council of Trent in 1547, which has never changed, has said those that believe they are justified by faith are cursed. The Protestant church didn't actually anathematize the Roman Catholic church. The Roman Catholic church anathematized the Protestant church because of that. So is this important for us to consider? Yeah, if we understand there is a mission field and we want to ask who is our mission field. We do this so often, and I've heard this, and I in my own mind have done this, has said, I need to try to reach that person. Oh, no, I'm not going to. They're Catholic. They already believe their own thing. Have you ever thought that? What does Christ tell us to do? He says, go share the gospel with the lost. Now, I'm not saying, please don't misunderstand me, I'm not saying that there are not people in that system that have been saved. I've sat through a Mass before and thought, there's enough Scripture read where the Holy Spirit could work through that and save someone. I believe that. But generally speaking, and by the way, looking at what evangelicals believe today, you could say a lot about the same things about the evangelical church. Just to be fair. But we must know who our field mission field is. Evangelicals and Catholics together, Charles Colson said this is that he signed the evangelical and Catholics together for this reason. He was moved by God's call to unity. And so instead of saying, hey, we have some differences. We have a mount that we can't cross, and until we deal with these things, we can't cross that. And so, Colson appealed to Christ's call to unity in John chapter 17, that they may be one as I am one. The problem with Colson's interpretation is it was wrong. That they is identifying a group of people that are disciples of Christ and his completed work. Anyone outside of the they is not the unity Christ was praying for. And so it's a a false application is what he's doing. He's making too many assumptions. Jesus also says this in his call to unity. Sanctify them in what? Truth. Your word is truth. Can unity take place apart from truth? No. 
Now, we recognize there are forms of unity that we can have eat through disagreements, right? If I took a poll on how we all understood end times or how we understood different various doctrines, would we, would we, would we exactly fill those out the exact same way in our understanding? No, but would we still be able to have wonderful fellowship centered in Christ, knowing that we're brothers and sisters in Christ? And that I, it's really not my job to try to evangelize you, but rather encourage you as the Scripture calls me to do. Yeah, we can have differences, but the fact is, is that there are some differences that we cannot have. What is the difference? What are those first-level doctrines? Well, the doctrine of God. Is it, do we believe in the same doctrine of God? Yes, kind of. Do we believe in the completed work of Christ? That's part of understanding the doctrine of Christ. And no. I want you to just hear Paul's words. In Galatians, he says this, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so I'm now saying again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Okay, so... What is the different gospel that Paul's addressing in the book of Galatians? Does anyone know? It's against the Judaizers. Tell me about the Judaizers. They added works. They added works to it. Did the Judaizers believe in faith? Probably. But did they believe that we were justified by faith alone? No. Look at what the anathematization of from Trent is, is this, that the impious is justified by faith alone. Do Roman Catholics believe you're saved by faith? Yes, they do. What they do not believe in is that you are justified by faith, what? Alone. They don't believe that you're justified or saved by grace alone. In Christ alone. And why can't it be in Christ alone? Well, because they don't believe that the sacrifice of Christ that has taken place once and for all was a full and complete atonement that took place. So it has to be done over and over again. So think about it again. How many sacrifices were given at the temple day and night? A lot, too many to count. How many sacrifices took place today? Let that sink in. Just today, alone. I, I, I don't think we could, we could put a number how many sacrifices has been taking place for the last four, five hundred years. Let that sink in because we have friends, we have loved ones that are bound in a system that is False. That repudiates the work of Christ. So, here's the point of this. We have to, and again, I don't say this to be controversial, I don't say this to, to be judgmental of anyone. 
on the face value of it, we have to view Roman Catholics as in need of the gospel. We cannot view them so much as enemies. We view them as in need of the gospel. When I was interviewed for this church in the pastoral search committee, they asked me about my position on this, and I said my goal would be for the priest of the church at the Holy Cross to come and know Christ and get married. I still would love to see that and to see their doors closed. We have to, though, rightly think about that, is that they are in need of the gospel. And while they have the right doctrine of God and Christ, insofar as Christ's nature, they outright deny the completed work of Christ. So when we think of mission to our neighbor, we must also include our Roman Catholic friends. So what does Paul write in Hebrews of this once-for-all sacrifice? The, the statement that it's once-for-all is probably the, the clearest statement that what Christ did when he offered up himself... was only one time. Now, this is another angle of this that we have to see is who offered up Christ. Yeah, well, and according to this text, he himself offered himself up. The Father sent the Son, but the crucial to our statement and understanding of the Gospel is that Christ was a voluntary willing sacrifice. It was a voluntary substitutionary atonement is what we'd proclaim. And so if I'm doing, if I'm offering up Christ, do I not lose a sense of what Christ accomplished and I now look to the one in whom is offering Christ? My faith then is transferred not to the person of Christ as revealed in the Scriptures, but my faith now is transferred to the one that is offering up Christ and the substance of that offering in a piece of bread and in a glass of wine as then the means of my salvation and faith. You see the danger of it. That can be the danger of removing this. You see in Ephesians... Chapter 5, verse 1. It says, Therefore be imitators of God as a beloved church, verse 2, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Now, specifically, the text tells us who gave Christ up. He gave himself for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. It speaks of something that has happened in that He gave Himself up for us as this fragrant offering and sacrifice. What is the tense of that? It's past tense. It's something that has already happened. It's already 
completed. If the sacrifice of Christ and the giving up of himself was incomplete, what do we make of these words? In John chapter 19 and verse 28, we read this. After this, Jesus, knowing that all now was finished, paused. Did Christ have work left to accomplish? No, it says that knowing that all was finished. Christ came to a point where he had completed the work of the Father upon the cross. He knows I've completed my work. He says, then to fulfill scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. That's meaning complete. So the work of Christ in what we have read elsewhere, in offering himself up, is it left undone? Was it insufficient? Was there something lacking in what Christ did on the cross? No, otherwise the words, it is finished, would make no sense to us. Christ accomplished it. It's, it's, it's finished. Then, notice the voluntariness aspect of this, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So, who gave up his life? Christ gave up his life. Who gave himself to be that fragrant offering to give up his life? Christ gave it. Who raised himself up from the dead? Christ raised himself up. Now, as we saw on Good Friday, or on Sunday morning, that, I'm sorry, Easter, was that, that it's a triune work of God, the resurrection. The Father raised, the Spirit raised, the Son raised Himself up. Jesus says, you tear down this temple, in three days I will raise it up. But what we see is this work of Christ, that He lives the perfect life. He goes to the cross, gives Himself to the cross. He Himself breathes His last. You and I cannot do what Christ did, in that neither, none of us can say this, I'm going to just give up my spirit. Do you ever notice that part of the text? That Christ actually gives up his life? None of us can will our own death. Christ willed his own death. We, we sometimes miss the fact that through the suffering that he had on the cross and the beatings, the scourging, and all that stuff, we think that that's what killed him. Christ actually gave up his own life and breathed his last when all things were accomplished. So now, if I then say, I need to do these things, I've entered into a works base, but if I, that's bad enough, but if I now enter into, I must offer Christ up every single Lord's Day for my salvation, I have completely done away with the work of Christ. I've denied it. Do you see it? It's a denial of the very work of Christ. It's also, in some sense, a repudiation of the resurrection. And I'm not saying that they deny the resurrection. They hold the resurrection. Absolutely hold to the resurrection. 
So I'm not saying they deny the resurrection, but I'm saying it's a repudiation of the meaning of the resurrection, that Christ was raised and vindicated. For what? His completed perfect work. Would Christ have raised from the dead if he had failed to do the work of the Father? The resurrection was the vindication of what Christ had accomplished. If we don't recognize that aspect of the resurrection, we miss part of the beauty of the resurrection, that Christ was raised so that we may have life, and in him he has completed his work. And in the resurrection, if I deny the fact that it's a completed work, then I can't see it as vindication of his completed work. But there's another aspect of it that the Mass repudiates. Not only the completed work upon the cross, not only the resurrection, but there's another aspect of Christ's work. And what is it? The ascension. All aspects of the cross are repudiated in the Mass. And why do I say the ascension? Well, what happened when he ascended? He is sat down onto the majesty, or to the right hand of the majesty on high. He's exalted high above the heavens. And what is he doing? What does the scripture tell us he's doing? He's interceding on our behalf. Now, if I remove Christ's intercession and I replace it with a man interceding for me, what have I just denied? The completed work of Christ in the ascension. And when we look at the Mass, we have to see all the elements of it and the implications of it. Now, is this just for me to pick on Rome? Not at all. I'm not an expert in those things. There's better people that doing that than I could. It's simply for us to realize what it is for the sake of our loved friends, maybe family members, that are trapped in it. So when we have conversations with them, we, can we say, yes, you believe in the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, and we have conversations with them. We want to be equipped with the Word of God, what the Word, God, of Word of God says on these things for the purpose of letting God's Word do its work. It's not your argument. It's what God's Word says. You know, I, I've found this, I don't know if you've found this, and this is not a general statement, this is just my experience. Most of my friends stuck in Catholicism do not know what they believe. It's not a matter of that they don't read the Bible or they don't study the Bible, although a lot of times that's, that's true. It's that they don't know what they actually believe. You think about all the years that Mass was performed in Latin. How many of you can understand Latin? But people sat through it for how many years? And so we have to be able to arm ourselves with the Word of God for the sake of the loss. The most depressing place you could ever be is in, the, in a Mass. And the most depressing thing I've ever witnessed was a funeral Mass. It was the most hopeless experience of my life. 
maybe that's hyperbole, but you get the point. It's a hopeless time. And so what do we see in this doctrine of the Mass is this, is it becomes a reliance now is upon a man. But what does Hebrews tell us when it speaks of... When it speaks of Christ's sacrifice and what Christ did, it's in contrast to whom? Priests that were offering sacrifices. And so if I was standing in the Old Covenant and I have sinned and I bring my sacrifice to the high priest, on whom am I relying? The priest. So if I have sinned throughout the week and I feel guilty and I want to have I want to have forgiveness for my sins and I don't I don't know Christ, I might believe in Jesus, but I don't actually know Jesus. And I'm told if I do these things that I'll receive forgiveness, on whom is my reliance? on a man. Guess what I've just entered back into? I've entered into the, to the Mosaic Code. And so the idea of Mass comes back to this, is the reliance of salvation is on a man, and the assurance of salvation is on the man. And what do you have to do to keep that assurance? Because you sin throughout the week, and because you sin throughout the week, you know that you're guilty, And so then what do you do? You have to then go to this man to receive forgiveness. Will you ever have assurance of faith? Assurance of faith was called during the Reformation by Robert Bellarmine, one of their bishops, as being the most egregious of the blasphemies of the Protestants. I forget exactly his exact verbiage. But Robert Bellarmine, who was a, was a Catholic theologian, said that assurance of faith was the worst. How many of you cling to assurance of faith that Scripture says we have? And that it is your great hope and great comfort in this life knowing that Christ has you and it's not dependent upon you. That sets you free. So what does that mean? We have friends and loved ones that are not free, but are actually trapped desperately in a system that every single week they're trying to get out of. But guess what? They're a hamster in a wheel. They'll never get out of it. That should motivate us to love by sharing them the gospel. But there's not only a reliance upon a man in terms of another person, there becomes a reliance upon myself. Because reliance on myself then is on my ability then to get to what? Mass. And if I miss Mass, guess what? I don't have my forgiveness. So not only do you you have this reliance upon a person to say, your sins are absolved. I'm relying on my own ability to be able to get there to partake and participate in order that I may be told my sins are absolved. It's a double whammy. You're not only trusting in the, the priest, but now you're trusting in your own self and your own ability to get there. 
What a frightening situation. Reliance is also on whatever is declared of me. You think about it in confession. I mean, you might tell someone all that you have done, but do they know really what all that you have done? No. They don't know what's going on in our hearts. They don't know our sins of covetousness. Those are sins of the heart. So we, we ask for forgiveness of murder and of lying and all of these things. But do we, do we, unless you were Martin Luther, you really don't ask for forgiveness for coveting of something. So reliance is based upon what someone knows of me, but the thing is, is they don't know all about me. So then, do I have an assurance that I'm actually forgiven? No, there's no way. Isn't that the wonderful truth about Christ is that he says our sins are forgiven? Past, present, and future. In fact, Colossians tells us they've been nailed to the cross. Our sins are forgiven. So you have a reliance upon a man, you have a reliance on yourself, and you have a reliance on whatever is declared of you. But then the ultimate problem is this, is mediation is not done by Christ. Mediation, intercession, is not done by Christ. It's actually done by someone else. And what have we read of the Old Covenant priesthood? Were they perfect? No. They died. They fell asleep. They didn't pay attention. Think of Eli when he sees Hannah. Here is Hannah in the temple or in the center of worship. Hannah's crying. Eli is observing her. You know, sometimes Eli gets painted as a good guy, but I, I don't think he was. How, how spiritual of him to say, woman, stop. Will you quit being drunk? How sensitive of a priest was Eli to one of God's children crying out to him? The whole point is, is that men are fallible. They get things wrong. I don't want any man to mediate on my behalf or intercede on my behalf in my salvation. Do I want you to pray for me? Yes, please pray for me, and I pray for you. But before God the Father, I want only one interceding on my behalf, and that's Christ, the God-man. And what's interesting is, if, is this, is that oftentimes in Catholicism, you don't even go to Christ as our intercessor. You go to his mother so that his mother might intercede on behalf of him, of his people. That the mother, he couldn't turn down his mother interceding. Think about that for a second. That means that I can't go to Christ. Christ doesn't care for me. Christ, I can't come directly to Christ. I have to go to Christ's mother, who was a sinner, and, in, and saved by grace, through faith, in her son. It completely repudiates the idea of Christ's completed work upon 
the cross. I hope this causes us to think differently. Again, I didn't say this to be controversial or to be judgmental. I simply wanted to look at what does the Scripture say about these things to open our eyes to the great need that we have in this community, quite frankly. And there is a great need here. And let us arm ourselves with what Scripture says of Christ's completed work. And let us share that completed work. Let us not write off our, our Catholic loved friends and family members and saying, oh, well, they believe their thing. No, they need to be set free. They need to be set free in Christ. And only Christ can set them free. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for Christ's completed work upon the cross. We thank you that it was once and for all. We thank you for how this has set us free, that the gospel sets us free. Father, we pray that you would give us a heart for our Roman Catholic friends. We pray that you would give us a heart to share the gospel with them. And Father, give us, give us minds that clearly understand your gospel and can see the differences and in love can spot out those differences and share those differences. And, and, and Father, we pray that you would work through us to see many saved, even here in this community. Give us a, a heart that is burdened for the lost, all of the lost. Not just those who openly say they don't believe. But give us a heart for those that say they do believe, but believe wrongly. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.